Hi, Grace Long Beach. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, you are, you are a God who is concerned with us, and for that we are grateful and overwhelmed. Thank you for caring about our lives. Thank you for caring about our lives in such a way that you came to us in the person of Jesus. God, we thank you that you care about us, that you gave us your word. God, I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, I ask that you would shape and form us into the people you are calling us to be. I ask that by the power of your spirit, that you might draw our attention, our affections to Jesus, to your son. And God, I ask that that we would come to you. Those of us who are weary, those of us who are burdened. God, Jesus says to come to him, that we might find rest. I pray that in some way this morning, that you would help us to experience the rest that you offer. Thank you that you are that type of God. Thank you that you are faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're participating in this complex and multi-layered conversation that we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to continue this morning and over the next, I think, two or three weeks, I'm exploring different themes um, in this book. And it's a book that we've gone through or have chosen to go through during this time of Lent, because again, Lent is this, is this opportunity to, to prepare for Holy Week, to prepare for this time where we are journeying with Jesus uh, toward the cross and the resurrection. It's a time of being kind of undone, of being exposed and uncovered, that, that we would then recognize our need, that we would recognize um, the, the call to dependence upon God for our very life for truly everything that we might need and want, that God is the one who fulfills that which we are longing for. And I think this time of Lent, I think what Ecclesiastes does is it sort of exposes all the various longings that we have and all of the futile ways that we go about trying to have some sense of meaning, uh, trying to, to fill our lives with, with a sense of purpose outside of um, and around God who has made us, created this world, and given to us the gift of life. So we're going to continue in the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we looked at the, the limits of pleasure where we see this, this figure, the teacher, Kohelet, um, as he's named in the book of Ecclesiastes, looking back um, of, at all that he's accomplished for the purposes of trying to find some sense of pleasure. And he says, as he says at the beginning of the book, that it is all vanity, that it is all absurd, that, that, that life itself is an enigma. And trying to, to gain some sense of satisfaction or pleasure out of all that he's made is ultimately, in a way, meaningless. It is like, it is like a breath. It is like chasing after wind that it can never fulfill. 
And we saw that this is a king who is talking, who has made and created this world, tried to manufacture a world um, to, to give him some sense of pleasure. This isn't, this isn't a person who at the end of his life had nothing and then was looking back wishing and hoping that he would have had more. No, this is a, this is a man who had everything and was still, still left wanting in life. The limits, of course, of pleasure. And now this morning, what we're going to be looking at is, is, is the limits of, of work. The, and, and I want to, when we use this word work, uh, when, we, when we talk about the word labor or toil as it comes up in Ecclesiastes, yes, this, I think this has to do with the work that we do, perhaps how we gain some sort of income, but I think it, it, it incorporates a, a larger sense of, of our activity, of the things that we do um, in, in, in building our life or contributing to our life and how we spend our energy and our time. And the book of Ecclesiastes is wanting to sort of take this idea of work, of toil, and look at it in in various ways, again, wanting to reveal its limits, wanting to reveal the various ways that we try to extract from this work ultimate meaning, um, an ultimate sense of purpose. Now, I was reading this week that Ecclesiastes, um, uh, somebody said it's not so much a book of nourishment, but it's more like a bath. It's more like a book of cleansing, of purging. He says this, we read the, this is Eugene Peterson, we read the preacher, Kohelet, to house clean our lives of the illusions and sentimentalisms that clutter our days as we follow Christ in faith. So think of Ecclesiastes in our exploration of Ecclesiastes as a way of house cleaning our lives, removing the clutter the illusions, the sentimentalisms that kind of get in the way of our following after Christ. So that's why we're in this book, and that's why we're going to be talking about the question of work, the problem of profit, and the gift of portion. So again, those, the, the, the structure of, of our journey this morning is going to be the question of work, the problem of profit, and then the gift of portion. So the question of, of work, of our toil, and, and, and I want to begin with, with um, this image or this moment in the, in the most recent Pixar film, Soul. I don't know if you've seen the movie Soul, but Soul is about this character named Joe Gardner. We see him at the beginning of this movie, and, and he, is, he is a music teacher who is just waiting for his big break. His, his big break on the jazz scene of wanting to play um, jazz and, and wanting to be on the stage. And we see that at the beginning of this film, he, he goes in, into an audition of sorts and he lands a, a, a big gig. And then something happens. I'm, if you haven't seen it, I actually don't want to give it all away. But through the course of the film, he, he ends up exploring and through various ways uh, what life's purpose is. Um, and, and what it means that, that he is living. Well, we get to this part in the film um, toward probably three quarters of the way in where Joe Gardner is going to, he doesn't just land the audition, but he's going to play for the first time in front of an audience with this band, with this woman named Dorothea Williams. And he plays, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing, and he plays so well. 
He, he's playing as if this is what he was meant to do. Actually, before he goes on stage, he's looking in the mirror and he says to himself, all right, Joe Gardner, this is the first day of the rest of your life. As if to say, this is the beginning, this is the moment that he has been waiting for, that all of his life is living up to. He plays, it's great. His mother is in the audience. Everyone stands and they clap. And then at the, end of the, at the end of it, he goes outside and he's talking to other bandmates, and in particular the, um, Dorothea Williams, who's the head of, of this quartet, I think. And he says, so what's next? And she says, well, we come back tomorrow and we do it again. And then he has this moment of almost disappointment or dissatisfaction, and she says, well, wait, what, Joe Gardner? And he simply replies with, I thought I'd feel different. Now, the sense I thought I'd feel different, he's, his, he's has imagined his whole life leading up to this moment, and he has this moment, and it's good, and it's wonderful. But then at the end, he's going to come back and do it again tomorrow. And he just thought he would feel different. Now, as I think about that line, as I think about Joe Gardner, I actually think that, that what Ecclesiastes is wanting to explore is that sense of perhaps why he thought it'd feel different. I mean, have you ever done something with your life? Have you ever imagined your life in such a way that if you were to pursue, if you were to do, if you could just make or, or have this particular job or do this particular thing, that all of a sudden you might feel as if you were living the life you were meant to live. And then you get to that moment, and then you just thought it'd feel different. In some ways, it's sort of a letdown. What's going on there? I think Ecclesiastes is wanting to get at this, wanting to explore this sense of thinking that our lives would feel different, that the things that we spend our time doing, the work that we pursue, we thought would feel different. And Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he begins his book exploring this. And, and I want to just give a survey of verses in Ecclesiastes, not all of them, but some of them, of how he is wanting to talk about work. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 through 3, vanity of vanities. Remember, Havel, again, absurdity, an enigma. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? Ecclesiastes 2.11. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind. And there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 23, I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they'll be wise or foolish, yet they'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes 3, 9, what gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 15 through 16, which you heard read this morning. As they, came from their mother's, as they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again naked as they came. They shall take nothing for their toil, which they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from toiling for the wind? Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All human toil is for the mouth, yet the appetite 
is not satisfied. So this idea of toil, of work. I mean, is the teacher here suffering a midlife crisis that he gets to a point in his life when he just, he looks back and thinks, man, all the things I spent my, my time doing, all of the work that I gave myself to, what is the point? What will be gained from any of it? I mean, do you resonate with this from our jobs to our work in the home to our parenting to all the different time and and energy we give to our pursuits, whether creatively or as hobbies? Do you ever just wonder what is this for? What gain is it? This is what the teacher is wondering about. What am I doing with my life? Now, this isn't just a question that is more recent questions, certainly all the way back into this ancient wisdom, do we see somebody wrestling with this question? Do you resonate with this wrestling? Now, as the teacher in all of this, as we've read those survey of verses, is, is he somehow suggesting that work, that our vocation, that they're, that, they're, that they're ultimately empty, that there's really nothing worth worth giving our time to, because ultimately, like, what's the absolute point? Well, I actually think the teacher is more nuanced than that. He's not suggesting that the toil, that the work, that our energy that we expend to the various things in our life, that it's ultimately empty. I think he's way more nuanced. I don't think he's that nihilistic. But I actually think he sees tremendous value in work, in our toil, if thought about a certain way, if put in its proper place. I mean, and we see this in all, what's called the Carpe Diem passages all throughout Ecclesiastes, which we see at the end of Ecclesiastes 2, in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13, Ecclesiastes 8, 15, Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 9. We see it here in Ecclesiastes 5, which I'll read. And this is, this is something that comes up again and again and again. This is what I have seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of the life God gives us. For this is our lot. So you have this teacher wrestling with this, what gain do we get from our toil? What gain do we get from our work? Versus the desire and the receiving of enjoyment in our work. And what I see at play here actually is the tension that we see come up the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. I mean, what we see in Genesis 2, right? This is before the fall. This is after God has created all things, after he creates humanity and places them in the garden. He says that their role, their one of the things that they are given to do is to work it and to take care of it. That humanity is placed in the garden to work and to take care of it. So work is a good because it is something that God has given humanity to do. Our vocations that God has given us to do are good. It is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Like God is the one who is calling forth things to be made. God, as the creator, we bear God's image 
in our ability to create, in our work, in the things that we cultivate. But then something happens in Genesis 3 after humanity decides to go their own way and to take it upon themselves to know good and evil instead of letting God be the one who defines those boundaries. And we see that they eat from the garden to attain knowledge, to really rebel against God so they don't need God, to become like God. And then work shifts from something that is a given good to something that Genesis 3 calls painful toil. Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, curses is God talking to humanity as part of their, their consequence for their rebellion. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I mean, this even sounds a little bit like Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In this sense of the way that you came is the way that you will end up. And there's this, this tension between that which is good, the things we give our time to being good, and then a shadow side to those things almost becoming or feeling like toil. It is, it is part of the human condition that this tension exists. And so what's going on here in some ways? What is Ecclesiastes exploring by sort of bringing up this tension, bringing up this sense of, of toil, of work, of labor, being something that that is questionable or unsatisfying or disappointing, but also something that we are to, to do and to, to receive and to enjoy. Well, again, as the teacher likes to do, he's wanting to deconstruct and uncover some of the various ways that we distort our work or activity. Last week, we looked at pleasure, as I already mentioned, that distortion of search, searching and seeking after pleasure as it want, as it giving us something as we are the center of what that is supposed to give us. Now, again, I just want to remind us to broaden this idea of work. It's our activity, the things we're giving our time to. And what the teacher connects with this idea of work throughout Ecclesiastes is this word gain or profit. And this is where the problem of profit comes in in its connection to work and to toil. The Hebrew word here is yitron. What's really fascinating about this word is that it shows up eight to ten times in the Old Testament, all of which are in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we were just to survey again the, the verses I already read, you know, what do people gain from their toil? Ecclesiastes 1, Ecclesiastes 2. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3, what gain have the workers from their toil? Ecclesiastes 6, all human toil is for the mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. This sense of gain in connection to work has the possibility of distorting the good that work 
can be. And this is important to, I think, the teacher's understanding of, of work and what it means to both for it to be toil, for it to be laborsome, for us to wonder about its meaning, and then also to find enjoyment in it. Because I think what he's wanting to uncover is this, is we expect way too much from the things we do. We expect way too much from the things that we do. We expect it to give us something that it can never give. We expect our jobs. We expect our work. We expect our home. We expect our kids. We expect our marriages. We expect our friendships. We expect our creative pursuits to give us way more than they are intended to give us. Ultimately, meaning and purpose. But as the teacher constantly says, he says, well, that, that meaning, that purpose is constantly in question. What makes life so absurd is that we cannot escape the reality of death. It renders things in a way absurd and meaningless. I mean, constant questions, right? Of what am I going to gain from my toil? Not just what am I going to gain, but what I do gain, I will not enjoy. It will be left for somebody else to enjoy. This is vanity. This is absurd. I'm going to spend my life doing all of these things for some sort of purpose and meaning, and yet will not be able to enjoy them. That will be left to somebody else, to some other generation. And the teacher is wanting to remind us that so often in our activity, in our pursuits, in something good like work, in all of its various forms, we expect it to give us way more than it's supposed to. I mean, as we saw last week, some expect work or toil to give them what they most desire. I mean, I think this is the one who works for the expensive cars and the luxurious trips. They toil and they work so that they can, that they can get what they want. They can get this pleasure. Ultimately, of course, never being satisfied. Some expect work to give them a certain level of satisfaction, perhaps because it means that they're, they're taking care of those that they love most, those around them. They're taking care of their family. I mean, this is the one who works so hard to ensure a good education for their kids. This is the parent who works hard to make sure their kids get good grades, have every possible thing they may need or want, every opportunity. But what happens when those things don't pan out in the way that we imagined? What does that mean about all of the work? Some expect work or toil to give them a sense of fulfillment because they're doing things that really matter. I mean, this is the millennial. This is the millennial who keep. This is coming from a millennial, so I'm not trying to, you know knock on millennials, but this is the millennial who keeps searching for that job that will make them feel satisfied, that will, that will give their life a sense of purpose, that will, that will tell them the story that they are doing meaningful work, not work like their parents, not just to make money, but actually something of substance that matters. I mean, this is like the activist who won't rest 
pursuing good things, but who won't rest and then discovers they're resentful of others who live different types of lives, caring about different types of things. I mean, some expect work to give them a particular identity. I mean, this is the one who won't quit until they're at the top. The artist who needs to be recognized, to have some sense of notoriety. That they crave. They crave a sense of of power and recognition. I mean, all of the various things that we do, we often want way more from them than they are ever intended to give. And when we want those things, when we feel we have earned or we actually possess those things, when they do not deliver, then all of a sudden we find ourselves questioning and wrestling in the way that the teacher does about our life and its meaning and its purpose. And it feels completely and utterly absurd, like an enigma. Because who are we? What am I doing with my life? And isn't it true that when we expect something or a thing or work or activity to give us something in return and it doesn't deliver, isn't it true that we can begin to resent those particular things? I mean, not just, again, the way that we earn money, not just our creative pursuits, but also people, our friends, our spouses, our kids. All of a sudden, we expect something in return. And when that does not deliver, or they do not deliver, then there's a seed of resentment that can fester. And over time, we realize that we're living a life We're just completely dissatisfied, angry, frustrated, weary, exhausted. And the teacher is wanting to, is forcing us to see this and come to grips with this and wrestle with this. You know, a favorite author of mine when she talks to students that she's teaching to writing students, she, she talks about the work of writing and she says, and she asks them, do you want to write or do you just want to have written something? I mean, do you actually want to do the work or do you just want what the work gives you? Do you want to write or do you want to just have written something? Think about that in every area of our life in terms of the the way that we spend our time and our activity, the work that we do. Why and how are we doing doing it? What are we expecting from it? Now, there, there are fine lines here. I'm not trying to say that it's easy to parse this out. And I think we discover that over time in many different ways that we are, we are, um, at least leaning into perhaps a distorted view of work where at other times it feels like, oh, this is, this is good. I feel like I'm, I'm engaging in this in a way that makes sense and is actually holistic and, and, and helpful and fulfilling. So I'm not trying to say that, that it's easy. I'm not trying to say that we can all of a sudden just get out of the negative loop. I think we go back and forth from it. There are times when I just feel like I enjoy my children, like I actually enjoy them. 
There are times when I realize that I'm expecting my children to give me something in return. And when they don't, my response is not gentle, it is not kind, and it is not loving. So again, the teacher wants to reveal to us that all too often we look at the things we do as a means to an end. And that when that end is less or different than we expected or wanted, then we're thrown into these questions of of meaning and of purpose. Now to go back to soul right after that that moment when Dorothea asks him, what's wrong? And he says, well, I thought it'd feel different. She tells the story. She says, I heard the story about a fish. He swims up to this older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, says the older fish. Well, that's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish. No, this is water. What I want is the ocean. I mean, how, how often do we find ourselves living a life, waiting for life to start, and yet never actually experiencing or enjoying the life that we've been given? because of some sort of gain we expect, some sort of profit, some sort of advantage that we're looking for, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes will say. And this is where the gift of portion comes in. Ecclesiastes 5, again, verses 18 through 20. This is what I have seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. This is our portion. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot, their portion, and find enjoyment in their toil. This is the gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their hearts. And so what's the antidote to this, to this thing within us that's searching for some sort of gain or profit or advantage, always looking for the angle, always, always being the, the center of, of what we expect from a particular relationship or a particular pursuit? How, what's the antidote? It's much like what we talked about last week when we were talking about pleasure as the teacher uncovers the limits of pleasure. It's, it's recognizing that we have been given a portion. This is our portion. Our lives are our portion. The work that we have is our portion. We are people who work, who have friendships, who parent, who are creative. Because that is how God has made us. 
they are, those things are good. Do we follow Jesus? Do we seek wisdom because we want Jesus? Because we believe that there is a way that God has intended us to live in the world? Or is it because what we think Jesus will give us in return because of what we think wisdom will ultimately give us? I mean, how many things in our life, good things, wonderful things, do we expect to gain from? Do we expect something far, far more than what it's intended to give? I think of Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? This sense of self-denial, this sense of self-emptying, of taking up our cross. That's where we find life. In giving ourselves to Jesus is where we discover actual, full, and meaningful life. Not because we're looking for that, but because we have discovered Jesus. And it's what he makes possible. So I wonder what a prayer, I wonder what a practice could be to help us reframe the things that we do as seeing them as God's portion to us, as God's gift to us. The things that we spend our time doing, the work that we have, the vocations we feel called to, the parenting we do, the friendships we have, the marriages that that we are wanting to, to cultivate and build. Like, what would it look like to accept those things as God's portion to us? I wonder if, if we might be a people who would be praying or consider praying something like this. Lord, help me receive with gratitude the portion that you've given now, what would, that, what would that look like to pray a prayer like that, ongoing, multiple times, when you find yourself expecting more than something you should be expecting from it? What would it look like to be praying, Lord, help me receive with gratitude the portion that you've given? To be people who... who aren't just waiting for our lives to begin, aren't just waiting for finally the moment, aren't just waiting for whatever to give us whatever we think we want or need, but rather to receive and to be open that God has given us a portion, that God has given us good work to do, that God has given us the opportunity to be in community and to be in friendship, 
that God has given us things that we can spend our time doing that are good, that God has given us the ability to create. Not as some means to an end, but as good in and of themselves because they are actual gifts from God. What would it look like to receive the things we have, the people in front of us, the things we do as God's portion? That's what I encourage you. That's what I want to be living into this week is to be people, to be a person who receives life, to receive the things that I do and spend my time doing as God's good portion because God is the one who gives and gives. Thanks be to God.